With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Chasing Perfection, a UConn women's basketball podcast. I'm Daniel Connolly here with Megan Gower, and our streak continues two weeks in a row where we record, we drop an episode, and the very next day, some major news hits. Two weeks ago, it was Shea Ralph leaving for Vanderbilt. Last week, of course, Morgan Valley was named the assistant coach, replacing Shea Ralph on UConn staff. Literally the next morning after we recorded, we recorded at like eight o'clock on Tuesday night and it was like 8 a.m. on Wednesday morning that it got announced. So UConn's vacancy is finally filled. Valley steps down from her position as head coach at Hartford. I wonder how much of that is due to the uncertainty that is Hartford potentially moving down to D3 or at least moving away from Division One athletics. But she also called it her dream job. She's moved around a lot in her career. She's from Vermont. Her parents don't live there anymore, but she said UConn was home. And I found an article from a couple of years ago. I forget when it was that the happiest years of her life were at UConn with Gino Oriam and everyone. So she's finally getting a chance to come back to that. As we said, the hire seemed to be written almost specifically for one person in mind. And yeah, it was written specifically for Morgan Valley in mind. It seems like she was the one that they wanted probably as soon as Shay Ralph left. I imagine Gino and her talk at least a relative good amount. So he had a pretty good grasp of where she might be with her career. And especially with how quickly Jen Rosati went to the Connecticut sun, it felt like Morgan Valley is probably their top choice. And it makes a lot of sense. She's a super experienced assistant. She's been at seven different schools in 14 years has moved around a lot, but has some pretty solid experience at Virginia Tech, at Washington, where she coached Kelsey Plum, the NCAA's all-time leading scorer, and helped them to the 2016 Final Four. She was on a Dia Barnes staff at Arizona before she got the job at Hartford. So very good track record as an assistant. Kind of fits the Shea Ralph mold as another guard to replace Ralph. But overall, it just feels like this is a slam dunk hire for UConn. Yeah, exactly. Like she said, or like you said, she has all this experience that's going to definitely be helpful coming into, especially a, a role that she's been in for so long. So they, they need to replace some of that experience. And just she's seen, you know, she's coached as an assistant at the Power Five level. She's seen NCAA tournament games. So a, a lot of good experience under her belt. And then, of course, the experience as a player at UConn as well. So just a pretty much the perfect hire for UConn into this spot. Yeah, it feels pretty much as safe as you could get and not even safe in a bad way. I think it's good to be safe, especially when you're UConn. Something I thought was kind of interesting was this is only the third time that UConn's had two assistants besides obviously Chris Daly, who were both former players. One time was, I believe, 1993-94 when Meg Pattison Como, friend of the show, and Wendy Davis were both assistants. And then I think in 0809, 
Shay Ralph and Jamel Elliott were on staff together. Both those were for just one season. So ideally this Jamel Elliott, Morgan Valley staff sticks together a little longer than those two. It seems like this is going to be a place that Morgan Valley is going to be at for a long time. I can't imagine you turn down a head coaching job or resign from a head coaching job to take a position as an assistant. If you're then just going to turn around and take another head coaching job in two or three years. So I think it makes a lot of sense for UConn in that regard where you know you're not going to have much turnover, at least for a while, where you had Marissa Mosley, Shea Ralph, and Tanya Cardoza, and even Jamel Elliott in our first go-around. They were on staff for so long. It was so much continuity in the coaching staff. So it seems like UConn's trying to get back to that too. I'm more interested just to see how she adjusts to UConn because she's been away for so long and the program's in such a different state than when she was last year as a student assistant in 2005 it's almost a completely different program at this point, but uh, supposedly she's regarded as a very good recruiter at all her stops. So I imagine that she's going to be able to translate that pretty well. And also just back to the point of both assistant coaches being former players. I feel like a, a lot of times the players talk about how they really like having a former player on staff because when Gino's on them or CD's on them or whatever the case may be, those coaches can relate to them. They know what they're going through because they've been in pretty much their exact same position. So she makes sense from a coaching standpoint and experience standpoint, a connection to UConn standpoint. So again, just an overall home run hire by UConn. Yeah, exactly. I think you covered it. I don't really have anything else to add there, but just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fits everything they really needed to add in that position. Speaking of coaching staffs, the recently departed Shay Ralph announced hers at Vanderbilt. As expected, Tom Garrick, her husband, is going to be the associate head coach, a position he's actually held at Vanderbilt before, which is pretty funny. And also Kevin DeMille, who was a practice player, a manager, a graduate assistant at UConn, and then was on staff with Jen Rosati at George Washington, someone that would be great to talk to on the show. He's now one of Shay Ralph's assistants too, so at least one UConn connection in there. The third assistant was a former Vanderbilt player. So it makes sense. She kind of has that balance of familiarity with both Garrick, her husband and DeMille. And also a former player who maybe has a good sense of what it's like at Vanderbilt, what it's like to play at Vanderbilt, as we just talked about with Morgan Valley and Jamel Elliott and can not only help keep the players that they already have, because you don't want to have to replace your entire roster looking at you, Syracuse. <laughs> and just have to start from the beginning. They have someone who's been at Vanderbilt. They have two people who have been at Vanderbilt on the staff with Garrick. So interesting staff. And I, I know DeMille when Shea Ralph got hired. Well, actually DeMille, a lot of people when Ralph got hired, were saying maybe UConn would look at him, but he makes a lot of sense for Vanderbilt having been with Jen Rosati, having been at UConn. He's probably got a pretty good understanding of what Shea Ralph's looking for. So interesting staff and, it's going to be an interesting SEC next season. <laughs> yeah, not the only big SEC news to come out in the past week. So definitely a very interesting SEC coming. <laughs> the news that shook the college basketball world this past week, Kim Mulkey heading to LSU after I think over 20 years at Baylor, led Baylor to three national championships got outed in the elite eight this season by UConn in that controversial finish that shouldn't have been controversial. Now Baylor can hand off the problem to LSU. <laughs> <laughs> the 
vest, throwing the mask in the press conference and everything. Yeah. Um, definitely interesting, but I mean, I feel like it's still hard to wrap my head around this one. Mookie's been at Baylor for so long. She really built that program from the ground up to into one of the best programs in the country. So it's still, even though we've kind of known that this is happening for, I think, almost a week now, it's still pretty baffling. So I think Baylor's definitely going to miss the success that they had under Mulkey. I mean, Baylor's been the second best program behind UConn. They've been better than Notre Dame. They've been, well, let me rephrase that. They have been the second best program behind UConn since Tennessee fell off, which was roughly what, 2008. So I guess in the last decade plus, they've been the best program in the country behind UConn. Aside from last season or two seasons ago now, the top team in the final AP poll of the regular season every single year was either UConn or Baylor dating back to, I want to say 2007 or 2008. So they've been a really good program. I think Baylor's going to miss that success, but a few things are assuming the entire roster doesn't just immediately transfer to LSU and they can actually keep these players. There's a very good foundation for whoever the new head coach is to build off. And I imagine they're going to be able to attract someone pretty good to fill that spot just because of how successful they've been first. And also it's just one of the better names in women's college basketball at this point. Having said that, I was talking to someone at Baylor that I know at Baylor and apparently I don't, doesn't sound like Baylor's going to miss Kim Mulkey a whole lot. They'll miss her success. But as I think we've kind of seen with Kim Mulkey this past year, I mean, just in general, but especially this past year at, I got the sense that she wasn't exactly the most beloved person around campus. Yeah, I don't think there's anything too surprising about that statement. I think the last year has certainly solidified that, but I, I don't think anything in her past 20 years makes that all that surprising either. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't exactly say that she's a player's coach. At least Brittany Griner would probably not say that she is a player's coach. <laughs> Going to LSU in the SEC... Obviously it's her home state. I think I saw an ESPN that she grew up like an hour outside of LSU went to La Tech. That's a tough conference to try and build a national championship contender in though, just because you're going to be getting battered almost every single night. Not only do you have South Carolina, who's pretty firmly established themselves as the top of that conference, at least right now, You've got a Tennessee program that's on the rise, a Georgetown program that's on the rise, a Texas A&M program that's been, that's won a national championship and been pretty solid under Gary Blair. Vanderbilt, whatever Shea Ralph could potentially turn Vanderbilt into, and really every other program in that conference that's just a sleeping giant with the college football money. That could be a bit of a tough place for Mulkey to try and build the program where she was but then having said that LSU has been a successful program in the past she said in her press conference there have been lots of final four banners no national championship but they've been to final fours so I think she probably I don't think she's suddenly going to go to LSU would not be the coach that she was at Baylor and not have a similar program to what she was at Baylor but it's hard to be at a place for a long time when she took over Baylor College basketball was a much different landscape. It's going to be really interesting to see how her new job kind of unfolds and how she does there. 
Yeah, great. I think obviously it's going to take probably a couple of years to even really be able to tell that, right? I think people are going to expect big things from her next year, but I think, you know, the LSU team wasn't that great this year. It's going to take a little time to build up, but I do think it's going to be interesting to see kind of what she's able to do in some ways. And like, there's more ways to attract players to a school like LSU where you're going to be playing some of the best teams in the country night in and night out in conference play unlike Baylor which is in the Big 12 which isn't quite that situation but it'll be interesting to see if she can kind of build another program that's as successful as Baylor or not. One thing that I think is going to be a little tricky for her is that at Baylor she almost exclusively recruited out of Texas. Every now and then she would have a non-Texas player and obviously not every single player came from Texas, but if you go back and look at some of their recruiting classes, a heavy, heavy majority of their classes came from prospects from Texas. And there were a lot of classes where it was only players from Texas. She really, really drilled into that Texas pipeline. And I honestly don't know super well what the college basketball hotbed down in the South looks like. I don't know how great LSU compares, but I wonder if she might have trouble trying to attract those same Texas players, if she's going to change her recruiting strategy or what it's going to be. And just another thing is I feel like the turnover, the buildup could happen somewhat quickly just because Mulkey has always been a coach who works the transfer market heavily. She seems to always have a core of a bunch of transfers. And secondly, the NCAA's new rule where if you transfer for your first time, you don't have to sit out. She is going to take full advantage of that. And I think she's probably going to bring in a lot of transfers to this LSU team. I imagine it's probably going to look pretty different. I wouldn't be surprised if a couple Baylor players follow her, or even if some of the Baylor commitments follow her, because I feel like she's one of those coaches where you're not going to play for the school. You're going to play for the coach, which is understandable, but I don't think they're immediately going to be a national championship contender next year, but I think they'll probably be a pretty good team next year. And at least an NCAA tournament team that could maybe make some noise once they get to March. Yeah, I could definitely see that happening as the trips of our stands right now. There's still a lot of really good prospects out there. And I feel like more people are added to it every day. So there's certainly chances that, you know, like you said, players from Baylor are going to follow her there. There's quite a few players on that roster that LSU added would definitely change kind of what the outlook for that team is uh, pretty quickly. And then, like you said, just she's worked the transfer market in the past, specifically the grad transfer market a lot, but with this new rule, I'm sure she's going to be working the whole transfer market. So I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them in the NCAA tournament next season. Speaking of the transfer market, UConn has another departure. Autumn Chasson, the walk-on from Louisiana freshman, has decided to enter the transfer portal and leave UConn. Not overly surprising. I remember I talked to her dad when she committed back last August or October, whenever it was, and he said that when she committed, she knew that there was a possibility that if UConn got everyone that they wanted in their 2021 class, there just wouldn't be a spot for her on the roster. And obviously that didn't happen, but I think it's one thing to say, yeah, I'm happy to go somewhere and be a walk-on and only practice and never get into games unless it's a blowout, not play any substantial minutes. It's one thing to say that and be willing to do it and even want to do it when you get in but then you go through a full season of not playing after being the star on your team. I feel like she's going to have a chance to transfer to a lower level division one school. If you're just any smaller D one school that in a one bid league 
And you have someone that not only was as good in high school as Chasson was, but also has the experience of being at UConn. That's a pretty easy decision to make. I would say she's supposedly a great three point shooter. So that's an easy addition. She can go somewhere in division one, go for a full ride, not have to pay her way, even find a really good school. Cause she wants to go to med school and play a lot of minutes. So I, we don't know for sure, but I imagine that it has to do with playing time. And obviously that was never going to come at UConn as a walk-on with everyone that UConn has coming in. So it makes sense for her. And I'm interested to see where she lands and how she ends up doing going forward. Yeah, I agree with that. I think she's a player that definitely has the potential to go in and make a splash and kind of like a, a solid major program. So interested to see where she lands or even at a smaller um, polar power five program so it'll it'll be interesting to see where she ends up and kind of what her college career looks like from here on out obviously she probably wasn't going to factor too much into the rotation next season but just strictly in terms of numbers that does clear things up for UConn a little bit just in the sense that they're not going to have such a gigantic roster so with Chasson they would have had 15 players they have 15 scholarships available so it would have been more or less a full roster I feel like if anything, that probably would have limited her from even getting minutes in practice, even practicing a whole lot, because when you're going throughout the season and you have 14 players that you're trying to mix in anyways, and I imagine next season, they're probably going to bring the practice players back. I feel like at that point, you can only have five on the court at one time. And maybe if you're going against an intra-squad scrimmage or something, you can only have 10 And you have four scholarship players ahead of you that are going to be getting in and getting minutes in practice, just getting time in practice to play ahead. It could have been the writing was just on the wall that she wasn't even going to get a chance to play a whole lot. So it's a smaller roster now, but it's still 14 players. So it's still pretty big. It honestly just makes sense. I wasn't really that surprised when I see it. Normally when I see someone's transferring, I'm just generally surprised by it, but that one came through and I'm like, okay, that really doesn't throw me off too much. It, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I agree with that. Like you said, there's just so many players on this team coming into next season and that all are going to be kind of ahead of her in that lineup. So I think it makes sense, especially if she can see what's going on and wants to play more. It, it, it all makes a lot of sense for her. Lastly, before we get into the Q&A, the best and most important news of the past week, the Yukon Dairy Bar is back open. You can go inside and order. Since the pandemic, I actually don't know when I haven't been to the Dairy Bar in over a year, which is a horrifying thought, but you could only get like quartz and you had to order like two hours in advance for the couple of times that I was up on campus with some time to kill. It just wasn't convenient to go get an ice cream, but that's changed. Dairy bar is back open and I'm very excited to make a trip up there and finally get some. It was like my goal to get dairy bar before I graduated and I wasn't able to do that. And I'm still very salty about it if you can't tell. So I technically graduate again a week from next Monday, May 10th. So I need to go up there and get ice cream before I do that. Yes, definitely. Very crucial news. I'm very excited about this as well. We'll be making a trip up to campus soon just for that. Yes, absolutely. What's your favorite flavor? Husky tracks. My favorite. What about you? I've never been a big peanut butter and chocolate fan, so I've never actually had husky tracks. I really like their chocolate fudge brownie and also their Oreo was some of the best like Oreo ice cream I think I've ever had. So those are usually my go-to when I go, but 
also one time in the fall, I want to say this was maybe my, my sophomore or junior year. So a couple of years ago, they had a, an apple cider float and it was like vanilla or cinnamon ice cream or something. And then they had like apple cider, like a root beer float, but apple cider. And then they poured, I think, caramel in and maybe added some cinnamon and kind of mixed it all up. And every single person I have ever told about that, it kind of gave the reaction like, oh, that sounds kind of gross. No, it was absolutely amazing. I've never had anything like that before. It literally tasted like liquid apple pie. It was amazing. It sounds very interesting. I like pretty much everything with apple cider, so it sounds good to me. Okay, that's fair. One of my roommates, I think it was my senior year, I was talking about it. And they were like, oh, no, that's gross. So one day I had to bring home ice cream and apple cider and we made apple cider floats and they ter- they came around. They were very <laughs> apple cider floats. Now I kind of wish it was false. I could have some apple cider and just general <laughs> apple products because I absolutely love apples. Yes, so good. Well, I'm not wishing away the summer quite yet though. <laughs> I feel like every single episode at this point, we're like, oh man, I kind of wish it was fall. But at the same time, no, I don't really wish it was fall at the same Yep. <laughs> Why can't we just have fall foods like all year round? Yeah, honestly, it's like everything about fall is the best fall food, fall beer, everything is the best in the fall. So yeah, let's just keep that part year round, but keep the summer weather. <laughs> Do they have the apple cider donut truck when you were on, when you were at UConn? Like the fatties truck that was there occasionally? I don't remember. There was like a staple apple cider donut. I don't remember like who it was that would be parked like right outside the union. I want to say it was every day for like the first two months of the semester, however long apple season was. Oh, that was, it was killer because like they were so good, but you also had to walk by it every single day and convince yourself not to get it. Yeah. And you could apple cider donuts smell so good. So I'm sure you could smell them from the truck and oh I have very little will, willpower. So yeah. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> And you know how the wind blows on campus. So you would literally be on the other side of campus and smell those apple cider donuts. And then naturally it's on Fairfield way. You have to walk by 15 times. And then I think my junior year, they were there. They were there. Yeah. I think they weren't there my senior year, but they were there the first three years. And my junior year, I lived in Garrigus. And if you know where that is, that's (laughs) up behind the, the field hockey field. So I had to walk by that pretty much every single day on the way to class. It was torture, absolute torture. And then for some reason, they didn't come back in 2019. Yeah. So that was heartbreaking. So me and my friends still talk about how the apple cider truck just randomly disappeared one fall and we weren't prepared for it. Yeah, that's definitely sad. How many days a week were you getting donuts when it did exist? I at first it was like cash only. I think the first few years it was cash only. So that really helped out. Cause I almost never have cash. Then I think at a certain point they were able to take credit cards. So I probably, I think I managed to get myself like will myself to only have it one day a week, usually Fridays or something like after I'd get out of my morning class, I'd go get some. And they were also like a dollar for one. So they were super cheap. Well, actually I don't know if that's cheap, but it's like very easy <laughs> math. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a test of willpower. For sure. Yeah. I feel like to a college student, a dollar is even, I don't know if it's cheap for a donut, but it's like easy to be like, yeah, it's just a dollar. It's fine. <laughs> right. I'm trying to think of the other places that I get 
donuts, but I usually get like the six pack. So I don't know other things that are really good on campus. Did you ever have one of the double chocolate donuts in any of like the various cafes around campus? I did not. I feel like I missed oh, out on this man. because I you would go to Dunkin' and out. get donuts. <laughs> oh yeah. No, no, no. You missed out big time. Well, especially because my first three years, I had the meal plan where you had like points or whatever that you could spend mm-hmm. basically as money in the cafes and like in the union food court they had this double chocolate muffin that pretty much everywhere i go whenever i'm traveling or just out and about in different towns and i find a bakery i go and try and find a chocolate donut or not a chocolate donut chocolate muffin and absolutely nothing compares to the ones on campus they were just i don't know what they did that made them so good but i had a friend who I had a lot of classes with them. So we both love the donuts at a certain point. We could power rank which cafes had the best types of these muffins and when the best times of day to get them, like the one in Wilbercross, they were always really cold and the muffins were the best when they were cold, not hot. We we had it all down to a science. It was incredible. I really want one of those muffins, but I haven't, been up on campus or when I have been on campus, I haven't wanted to go in any buildings because obviously a lot of UConn students didn't take the pandemic super seriously. So when I was on campus, I was trying to avoid the students. So I don't know, like if those things are open in the summer and like the non school year, but yeah, those chocolate donuts were probably the best things on campus. All right, I'm going to have to go look for those (laughs) before a game next year because usually I I have, like, I know there's free food at the games, but I always end up at the Union because the mac and cheese is still so good. Like, I still want to Union mac and cheese every time I go to campus, (laughs) so. (laughs) I feel like the mac and cheese kind of went downhill. I haven't had it in, like, over a year now, so I don't know. Like, like even throughout. Nostalgic thing. (laughs) Even throughout my college career, like, when did you graduate? 2015, right? 2016 yeah okay so you graduated and i came in like the mac and cheese was a1 when i came in it was like super melted gooey incredible i would get it all the time i kind of felt like as the time went on like the cheese just wasn't as gooey and you were getting like pasta with cheese it wasn't it just wasn't the same thing but no i can like that's one of those foods where like it's not just a taste like it's a whole experience like sitting in the union normal life in college having one of those at lunch uh it was just those were the days yeah so good okay now i just want you to mac and cheese so (laughs) (laughs) we need to plan some road trip down to yukon and have chasing perfection food reviews yes that sounds like a solid episode i'm excited for it (laughs) what was your favorite off-campus food place uh probably sergeant peps that's a good call yeah Yeah. they there were like a sneaky amount of pizza places but no sergeant peps was definitely the best although like i don't know how far we're getting off campus but like the best pizza in the vicinity of campus was definitely willington pizza house oh yeah for sure for sure but yeah i feel like in terms of places that were like really close to campus it was definitely sergeant peps and then Panda Express, if that counts as off campus, but it was in the Union. But I'm still mad that they got rid of that because it was the closest Panda, like in all of Connecticut still. <laughs> I heard a rumor that there was a Wendy's in the Panda Express spot before it was Panda Express. Is that true? Or was 
Um, no, it wasn't in the Panda Express spot. It was in the spot next to Panda Express, though, where, like, I think it's, like, oh, that 1.2 one plate, two plate is yeah. now. But, yeah, they had that when I was a freshman, and it was amazing because it was open until, like, 2 a.m., too, which oh, everything else man. in the union would be closed, but you could get Wendy's fries. So, yeah. That speaking was, of things that I would – That went away. <laughs> yeah, speaking of things that I would have spent way too much money on, my hot take is Wendy's <laughs> has the best fries of the fast food places. I mean, they're just incredible. And then, like, you just can't match a Frosty. Yeah, fair. I think McDonald's has the best fries, but yeah, you can't compete with a Frosty, so. Right. Oh, God. Yeah, that was that was the one that always made me mad. Like, we didn't have any, like, really good, like, the closest fast food place when I was there was the McDonald's way down in Mansfield Center, which I, I did yeah. take plenty of trips to over my years. I had one of my roommates my junior year had a car, and I didn't. <laughs> I think one time I got back from like a football game at I think it was like past midnight or even later and I hadn't eaten like they ran out of food at the football game when I was up in the press box before I had gotten there and I got back and I was with one of my friends and I convinced him to drive us down to the Wendy's that was next to Walmart down in Wyndham and uh, I <laughs> that was that was a good night but oh, that, that could have been on campus that just would have been unmatched like yeah my hot one another hot take i have is that store center kind of sucks yeah like what is even there for food i guess there's the most the 7-eleven was clutch but i heard that close so i'm like i don't yeah i heard that too yeah moe's was good Um, like moe's is just a very like very good fast food option that's like you always know what you're gonna get when you go to moe's yeah also blaze pizza was good that was that was really good See, that I'm, didn't exist till like my senior year, but it was good. I've been in Blaze like a million times because my friends would always want to go. But like, I I just like cheese pizza. I'm very plain. I just like my cheese, and their cheese just wasn't that great. And you can get better <laughs> cheese pizza any elsewhere, but it's at least a cool place. Uh, Insomnia Cookies. Insomnia Cookies was a nice yeah. spot. And then Muya wasn't bad, but like, it's just. Like it's very nice and everything, and I like Store Center, but a lot of the options are just very underwhelming. Yeah, exactly. I would agree with that. It's just like nothing super exciting. The like old stuff over underneath, like what's I think it's Huskies that's over there now. Like all all that stuff is better. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm not sure if this is true. I think I heard that Wally's closed. I feel like I heard that too, which is also upsetting. Honestly, like didn't frequently eat Wally's because it's just like so much salt, but it, oh, yeah, it was I, I good did. whenever I had it. <laughs> One place that opened, I think it was my junior year. That was honestly like, I, I hope it's still open because it was closed for a lot of the pandemic. Dave's Deli, kind of in store center, the DP Doe building, if you know where that is. Okay, yep. They had the best buffalo chicken sandwich i have ever had it's one of just the best sandwiches i've ever had i've never had anything else there just because the buffalo chicken is so good and one of my friends turned me on to it the same friend that i'd get chocolate muffins with that (laughs) oh man i need to take a trip up to stores get dave's for lunch and then go up to the dairy bar or find a cafe see if they have a muffin and go to the dairy bar and get some ice cream that would be just a great day and then go up to the top of Horse Barn Hill. Like, I can't imagine having a more perfect day. Yeah. It sounds pretty solid. I have not heard of this Dave's place. I'm too old for that. But it, I do love a good buffalo chicken sandwich. So it sounds intriguing. Oh, you gotta go. You gotta go. Just buff, hot buffalo chicken with 
just enough blue cheese. And normally like if I have Buffalo wings or Buffalo tenders, I prefer them plain, but, or like with no sauce, but like the blue cheese, oh man, they're, it's, you got to work through it slowly, but it's absolutely incredible. So next time you're up at stores, if you're getting food, go to Dave's deli or just, okay. that is a general recommendation for anyone. The next time you're on stores, go to Dave's deli. It's amazing. We're not sponsored, but if Dave's wants to sponsor us, we will gladly take it. Also, I somehow forgot my favorite store center place, which is Dogland Cafe, because I do still go up there before games sometimes still. Oh, you're not going to like this. I think Dog Lane's the most overrated place on campus. No, it's so good. Their chili no, is so good. Best burger on campus by far. No, that's because there are no other burger places. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's first by default. It's overpriced. Well, it's way better than Yeah. <laughs> Not wrong. Like I don't love Muya, but it's it's really only Dog Lane or Muya. Those are your only two options. This is true. This or the is dining true. hall and the blended burger, oh. which oh. 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 <laughs> <laughs> or just any dining hall food. Just oh. I I've been to Dog Lane a lot, and it's like a very nice aura, and it's a really nice spot. But every single time I've gotten food there, I'm just super overwhelmed, underwhelmed, underwhelmed. And it's kind of expensive too. Like, I just yeah, don't. That is true. It is expensive for college. I, I will agree with that. Also, I don't think it has Wi-Fi, which is like that half does. the point. That, it does? It definitely has Wi-Fi. Yeah. I used to work there sometimes. It definitely has Wi-Fi. Oh, okay. I'll take your word for that. <laughs> they also have unlimited. So this was like the clutch thing about it in college is it was like unlimited refills on coffee when you buy coffee. Uh, see, I'm not a coffee You're, drinker, so I wouldn't have learned that. Yeah. I'm addicted to caffeine, so it was very useful. <laughs> <laughs> then there was Grill 86. Oh, boy. That place it's... was not open when I was in school, but I feel like oh. it was open when my sister was in school, and all I've only heard is horror stories. <laughs> Grill was just a place and a half. Like I, There's no proper word to actually describe it. Like I don't really want to get like sued for libel or slandered, Cause I don't think they're open anymore, but like their entire, if, if you meet us somewhere, I'll tell you the story of grill. I don't want to say it while we're recording. Cause I don't want to get in trouble, but <laughs> it had a very interesting business plan, let's say. And it had some interesting moments throughout the year, but one year my, I think it was my sophomore year. I had friends who were seniors. So we would go every, I think it was Tuesday night to trivia there. And like they would all get beers and I was under 21. So I wouldn't get anything. And one time I showed up, like, I think got there and went to the bathroom. And when I came back, the waitress had taken their orders <laughs> and I come back, sit down and she's like, Oh, hi, can I get you something to drink? Like we have a deal on Bud Lights tonight. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I'll just have some water. She like stops, looks at me and goes, what are you driving tonight? Like, Oh my God. I, I just want a water. Like first I'm under 21 so sorry for doing your job for you second <laughs> like I, I don't appreciate being roasted for not wanting to drink a beer like what kind of place is this i still have to hear about what are you driving tonight every single time i see them every single time so thank you random waitress also, at grill yeah bud light might as well be water so you know <laughs> <whatever>. <laughs> they also just had awful food Oh, the food was just terrible yeah. at Grill. Well, I like, feel like everything I've heard about that place and like the weekends, it had about a Huskies vibe and you could not 
pay me to eat anything, the kind of food that would have been served at Huskies. So, <laughs> see, Huskies, yeah, but was Huskies Tavern a thing when you were at UConn? No, I wish it was because I I have been there since it like I've been back on campus and it seems like a cool spot. Huskies Tavern has great food, great food. <laughs> I was there one time I did this coaches show for men's soccer, my sophomore year, they had food like Mac and cheese, chicken tenders, like Buffalo strips. Oh, it was one of the best meals I've ever had. Great food. So yeah, no, but grill. Yeah. Anything that anyone's ever said about grill is probably accurate. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, we're going to take a quick ad break, probably go get a snack. And come back for our Q&A. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You asked us questions. We are here to answer them. First one comes from BBD938. Any word on the out-of-conference schedule with COVID delaying several series completions, i.e. Baylor, Virginia, Dayton, and the start of the series with Maryland and Texas? So as far as I know, it doesn't sound like the Little Rock series is going to happen from what Gino said last year when they went down to play Arkansas. I believe the Texas series is just getting bumped back a year. If I'm not mistaken, as for some of the rest, I feel like a lot of them are probably just going to get canceled. I know with UConn football, a lot of those games had a clause. If there is some like unpredictable event, some, a pandemic, that the game would just be canceled. It wouldn't have to be rescheduled. I bet a lot of them probably get pushed back. I know Notre Dame got pushed back. I think Baylor was probably outright canceled, which hopefully it is because I don't think UConn really is going to want to play Baylor going forward with Kim Mulkey gone. I would guess like Quinnipiac and Mississippi state, those series are kind of off. They played South Carolina, Maryland, I would guess gets pushed back. I feel like they're probably going to try and play a little rock next year, but that's probably lower on the priority just because Kristen Williams has already had kind of a de facto homecoming. There's nothing on the schedule, at least right now for Olivia Nelson, Adota's homecoming, which you'd think they'd try and figure something out for that, whether it be Georgia, Georgia tech, another school kind of in the Atlanta area. She's from winder, which I think is right outside of Atlanta. So whatever happens, the schedule's a mess. And I think even UConn's still probably trying to figure it out, but Hopefully they at least still have a solid schedule right now. It's pretty away heavy. At least the notes I had, I don't really know how accurate these are, but they have five away games and two home games and maybe a neutral site game. This Louisville game that has been talked about for like two years now that was supposed to happen last year. Didn't happen last year. Might happen next year in the champions classic or one of those neutral site games in the New York city area. Short answer. I have no idea. Exactly. Just lots of uncertainty. I think that trend is going to continue for a little while here. I think no one really knows where we're going to be at next fall at this point too. So it's just all up in the air still. 
one potentially exciting game and it would actually kind of knock out two birds with one stone. They're supposed to go out and play Oregon next year, which would not only be a great game, uh, Oregon program that's definitely coming back up after losing Sabrina Ionescu and Ruthie Hebert and Satu Sabali. Also a homecoming game for Avina Westbrook, who's from Salem, just south, the capital south of Portland. So it would be a great chance for her family to go see. But yeah, I think these notes that I have in front of me about who they're scheduled to play, I don't really think those are going to be super relevant. I imagine we're probably going to get a fair bit of announcements over this summer as things kind of clear up because UConn still has to build its non-conference schedule for next year. But I imagine a lot of it's also going to depend on what the season looked like. You probably hope that it's a more normal year, but you probably can't tell for sure at this point. So yeah, up in the air, I'm sure we'll know sooner rather than later the status with not only their non-conference schedule for next year, but also just what what's going to happen with these series. Yeah, exactly. I think as, as some of those games become firmed up for next year over the, the course of the next few months, announcements as to what's going to happen with the series as well will be coming. So I think that's just all kind of a still up in the air, but stay tuned. A couple more schedule-related questions. This one comes in from Nick Grondon. I hope I pronounced that one right, Nick. First, the likelihood of extending the series with Tennessee. I mean, Gino seemed very unopposed or very opposed to that when the series got announced. I'm pretty sure he more or less said, we're going to play these two games and then we're never going to play again. He seemed a lot more amenable to it. I don't remember if it was after the Tennessee game last year or after the Tennessee game this year. It all kind of blends together at this point, but I think he has a lot of respect for Kelly Harper, but his comment was kind of like, yeah, we'd like to, if they want to, we want to play good teams, but our schedule's a mess the next few years. So it might be a few years down the road, but I think it would at least be good for Tennessee to stay on the schedule. It creates buzz. Tennessee's going to be a better program. So it should be a half decent game, but yeah, any games that get this sort of attention that UConn Tennessee is going to get, I think are good and should stay on the schedule. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think one, just having a solid SEC opponent on the schedule is always a good thing. And then I think we've seen that whether it's a nostalgic effect or the fact that Tennessee is getting good again, there's definitely a buzz around when UConn plays Tennessee and it gets national attention. So always a solid thing to keep on the schedule. The second one from Nick, power five team you would most want to schedule a home and home with. This one's a fun one. I'm going to throw this one to you first so I can think about it. (laughs) Yeah, this is a hard one. I feel like there's a lot of teams. I'm going to go Pac-12 heavy. I'm going to have two because I just can't make up my mind. But I feel like Arizona, even though they they lose Ari McDonald, I think what Adia Barnes is building there is going to stay a solid program. She's picked up a couple of transfers off the market. So I feel like that would be a fun one. And I just love UCLA's program. They picked up some big pickups in the transfer market um this this offseason so would love to see a home and home with UCLA I think they had one a couple years back it was I think maybe lose homecoming game or something but would like to see that pick back up yeah it was I think they played at UCLA lose junior year and unfortunately she missed that game because she hurt her foot in the season opener against Cal and then I think they came to UConn the year after if I'm not mistaken but yeah, no, those are two good ones. I'm also going to stick with the Pac-12. I think Stanford. I don't know why Stanford hasn't been on yeah. the schedule. That's one of those teams that should be a staple, if not every year, at least every two years or something. 
you got to get Stanford on the schedule, especially with them coming off a national championship with how good they're going to be over these next few years with the way that Tara Vanderveer has recruited and is still recruiting in the future. So that would be a really great series. And it feels like every single time these two teams have played, it's been either a really good game or a momentous game, whether it be Stanford ending UConn's win streak or, or pick any win streak that Stanford's ended actually. <laughs> The game, Brianna Stewart's junior year at Palo Alto, where Stanford upset UConn. I think they opened the season a few years ago against Stanford on a neutral court in Columbus, I want to say. So, yeah, get Stanford on the schedule. Make that close to a yearly thing. Other than that, I don't, I can't think of really any others. I think it would be cool to probably get Vanderbilt on the schedule on a somewhat consistent basis. Oh, actually, I, I feel like we're missing a, pretty obvious one here let's get iowa on the schedule at least while caitlin clark is there we need more caitlin clark page beckers matchups yeah that's that's definitely a big money maker there they should be jumping on that that would be a great neutral site game somewhere i don't know where yeah a good middle point with iowa and (laughs) yukon would be but like yeah yeah, I don't know, maybe like a Chicago or something, like a big city yeah. that's kind of, it's not really, it's central, but it's, you know, some a place that would draw a, a following for people to go to the game. I think that would be a good place. Or even just New York City, get a lot of eyeballs yeah. on Caitlin Clark and Paige Beckers playing together. That would be another fun one. But at the same time, it would be very cool to see Pey- uh, Caitlin Clark up close. And also, Iowa has a great fan base out there, so. I feel like they always get really good crowds, but if he can get UConn out there, it'd be a bit of a madhouse. So not only the Caitlin Clark page Beckers factor, but I feel like just in terms of the atmosphere that both games would bring, it would be really fun. I think Iowa might actually be my number one choice over Stanford as much as Stanford should be. I think Iowa, if it would be in the next three years would be more fun. Yeah, I feel like Stanford's the easy argument because it's probably going to be the most competitive game. I think I think we're going to get to this one, but but Stanford's going to be one of those kind of top programs alongside UConn the next couple of years. But because of that, Caitlin Clark Page Beckers matchup, the amount of hype they got this year, it would just be fun to see more of that. Right, or you know, do both. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like once you kind of get this year's scheduling and everything kind of figured out maybe two, three years down the road, it starts to open up a little more and you have, they'll have more flexibility work to work with. So hopefully we get at least one more Caitlin Clark page Beckers matchup before we get there. Nick had four good questions. So I'm just going to stick with him right now. (laughs) Most likely non DePaul Marquette team to challenge UConn in the big East. I think I'm going to go with Seton Hall. I feel like, I mean, they picked up Andre Espinosa Hunter from Mississippi State. They also just picked up another Mississippi State transfer, I think, this offseason. It got pretty good towards the end of last season. I don't know. I feel like they've got a good location, good coach, kind of primed to be a team that could be a contender. Yeah, I was thinking the same one just because I'm a big Tony Bazella fan. He's a great dude, great coach. They also got a friend of mine, Katie Armstrong from Fairfield, an all-Mac player, sister of a former UConn soccer player too, funny enough. But yeah, they, they've they got a solid program there. They played UConn pretty tough in that first game this past season. They even played UConn tough the year before where Aubrey Griffin needed 25 points to get UConn the win. So they're a scrappy team, a competitive team, well-coached. They're definitely getting that talent base up. I feel like they're getting 
they had a lot of talent, but it wasn't necessarily all coming together for them at times. I feel like they should probably have a more cohesive team, I would guess, this season. So another option, maybe Creighton, just because Jim Flannery's got a pretty solid program, but I kind of have a harder time saying anyone out West just because, well, obviously besides Marquette, just because no one out there really impresses me. I feel like it would just be a massive shock, a Tulane type shock. Once you get past DePaul Marquette and even to a certain degree Seton Hall, I think it's pretty much wide open from there. It would be a borderline miracle for someone to pull off that upset. Last one from Nick, most likely non Beckers, Kristen Williams, all American candidates. Let's power rank these. We can do a top five. I feel like this is tough. I think. Or maybe top three. Top three might be easier. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel, I think I'm going to put AZ Fudd first, which is high to put a freshman, but I just think all the hype that's coming in around her and just looking at kind of the returners and where you expect their minutes to be at. I think I'm going to put her first. Uh, Maybe... Olia Edwards second. Hmm. I'm struggling with who to put third. I guess it's a tough one. Yeah. I don't know. It's tough. Like <laughs> I think maybe the next best player on the team is Westbrook, but I just like it. She does her game. I just don't see her getting to that all American level. I don't really know that I see anyone other than those other two getting to that all American level. I guess live if she makes some kind of huge jump in the off season, but I just don't have a lot of faith that that's happening. Well, live was an honorable mention all American this past year. If I'm not this mistaken, is fair. This right? is true. This is true. So, yeah. so I guess she should go in that list somewhere. So I'll put her at third. <laughs> I think I'm going to flip your top two. I think Aaliyah Edwards is going to be number one for me just because of how good she was during the NCAA tournament and how much better I think she's going to be by next season. I don't even think it would be a stretch to think that she might be an all American if she makes just a even a good leap, not even that big of a leap, she's just such a dominant force that I don't know how many teams can really stop her. And she's going to do bonkers numbers against big East opponents. She's just going to, she's just going to bully big East teams. I feel like there needs to be a stronger word than bully, but like <laughs> they're just not going to be able to stop her. Then I think, no, I think I'll probably put live too, just because even if she doesn't, I think the difference is we watch live every game and we know what she's bringing and when she's not bringing, but if you just kind of look at her stats, she's a pretty good player and she is a pretty good player in the first place. If she can make just enough of a step up, add in the fact that a lot of the better bigs in the country just graduated Charlie Collier specifically, there might be an opening for her. And I feel like the fact that she's already kind of cracked that all American threshold as an honorable mention it'll be easier for her to make it than I think it would be for AZ FUD, especially if AZ's playing behind Paige and Kristen Williams. Even if she's really good, I think those two are probably still going to get more touches than her. So I think I'm going to go Aaliyah number one, Olivia number two, and then AZ number three. But yeah, I think those are really the clear ones. I know I said Aubrey. One of my hot takes was that Aubrey was going to get All-American consideration this past year. I don't really want to stick to that take again this year. I, again, still very high on Aubrey, but I, all Americans, a high bar. And I think she can still be a really good player without being all American. Exactly. And I think that's also going to become a point with this team at some point. They have so many good players and all the all Americans can't come from UConn. So it's going to, it's a point, you know, 
as good as someone might be, they're probably not going to get that consideration. I feel like a sneaky option might be Dorka though. Like she was a yeah, good, good player at Ohio state. And maybe I think a lot of times we see that players try and take a step up to come to UConn and don't really work out. But I wonder if Dorka who's already played at a pretty good level at a high level can come to UConn with better players around her and really just explode. I don't think I would put money on it, but I think she's going to be a good player for UConn. And maybe if she just really kind of goes off and hits her stride with everything that UConn will put around her, she could get herself into the All-American consideration. So she'd at least be my dark horse candidate. That's fair. I feel like so much of this is going to come down to what happens with development in the front court over the summer and really what that lineup looks like as we head into the season and who's getting the bulk of the minutes up top there. Next one comes in from Alter Ego, mentions Liv. Given her performances in the NCAA tournament and her no-show against Arizona, your thoughts on the possibility of this starting lineup come November. Beckers, Williams, Westbrook, Edwards, Juhas. Just want to start off there by saying Olivia Nelson Adota was actually really good in the postseason until that Arizona game, at least until the Baylor game. I wouldn't say that she was amazing in the Baylor game, but she held her own. She was good enough for UConn to win that game. And then obviously we don't need to talk too much about Arizona. As for that starting lineup, I don't think I would be shocked, but I still have a pretty hard time seeing Olivia Nelson Adota not being in the starting lineup. She's still a really good player. And even if, yeah, she's not the All-American elite post-score that we thought that she might eventually become. Again, she's still a really good player. She still has proven that she can have really strong performances. It doesn't need to all be about her scoring. I think the team's better when she's out there playing well. I don't know what the starting lineup's going to look like, but I feel pretty good that Olivia nelson Adota is going to be in it. Yeah, I have a hard time imagining Olivia nelson Adota not being in the the starting lineup, I think it's going to have to take some kind of leaps and bounds from Edwards and Newhouse over the summer, if that's going to be the case. And I, but still, I just think she's been also, she's been on this team for what will be four years next season. And I think that matters as well. So I don't, I don't know what the minutes distribution is going to look like in the front court, but I would be very shocked to see her not in the starting lineup, lineup come November. So what's your way too early, way too early starting lineup prediction? I feel like. It's Becker's, obviously. That's no brainer. Williams. Yep. Yep. Westbrook, Olivia. I struggle with this last part. I honestly, I think it's like a tie for me for th- between three players that get that last spot. It could be Leah Edwards, it could be Nika Mule, or it could be AZ Fudd. I don't know who put in the last spot. Yeah, I. I'm I'm with you on those same four. It's that fifth spot again. That's tough. I feel like that could be something that maybe rotates throughout the year. So there's probably no definite one fifth starter, but for who it's going to be the first game in the season opener, we actually just occurred to me. We don't know who the season opener is. Whoever that is. I think I'm going to go with Nika just because I think she probably progresses pretty well this off season. She was already the starter. Yeah. I, my gut says Nika. I think Edwards probably has a better chance than FUD, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it's FUD in there. But yeah, if it's not one of those three, I think I would be pretty surprised. Maybe Juhas has a shot, but she, I don't know why. I Again, we are just totally guessing here, but Juhas kind of feels like an off-the-bench player for me. 
on this team as kind of a backup to live in a certain way, even though they're different players. So yeah, it's that fifth spot. That's kind of tricky. Agreed. I feel like you can kind of pretty be pretty solid on those four, but that fifth spot, I'm sure we'll learn more over the summer and stuff, but right now I really have no idea. Continuing on with questions about the lineup and the rotation, Brian Thiessen, my cousin, shout out to Brian. Will Gino still have a seven player rotation or will he possibly play 10 or so? All right, let's make a way too early rotation prediction. I think Paige Beckers is still probably going to get the most minutes on the team as she did this past year. I'd be pretty surprised if that changed. Kristen Williams is going to play a lot. Avina Westbrook's going to play a lot. Nika Mule is going to play a lot. AZ Fudd's going to play a lot. That's five players right there, all guards. Is that all guards? Did I say Olivia Nelson to Dota? Yep. No, you didn't. Oh. Yeah, you said all guards so far. Okay. <laughs> then Olivia Nelson <laughs> Dota's obviously probably going to be one of their main forwards centers along with Aaliyah Edwards. That's seven right there. I feel like Dork is going to make an impact. So that's eight. So alone, that's more. Then Aubrey Griffin. I don't think Aubrey Griffin is suddenly going to be out of the lineup. That's nine. And then it's basically a matter of, do you think one of Mir McLean, Caroline Ducharm, Sailor Poffenbarger, Amari DeBerry, or P.F. Gabriel? I, I don't think I'm missing anyone besides those five. Do you think one of them is going to break into the rotation? I feel like one of them probably will. So, yeah, I think I would lean towards closer to a 10-player rotation. Maybe it's not 10 and things kind of work themselves out, but I think it's going to be closer to 10 than it is to 7. Yeah, I agree with that. I just think when you look at the amount of talent on this roster, it seems like a disservice to only play seven players. You'd be wasting kind of the embarrassment of riches that you can have right now. So I agree. I think it's going to be closer to 10. However, I think it could be maybe a seven-player rotation in a given game, but or maybe an eight-player rotation, let's say, in a given game, but it might be different players off the bench Maybe UConn one game, Caroline Ducharm and Sailor play a lot. And maybe Mir and Aubrey don't play as much or Amari don't, doesn't play as much. But another game, if UConn's playing someone with more size, maybe Amari, Aubrey and Mir play more. And some of the backup guards like, again, Sailor and Caroline don't play as much. So I could see it maybe being an eight player rotation during the game, but those eight players aren't necessarily all the same every game, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think we've talked about this a little bit on prior episodes, but UConn just has so many weapons on this team, so they've got an opportunity to use what they need on any given night, so I definitely think that makes sense. Next one, also about the rotation, but a little more specific from JS. How will Nika Mule's minutes be affected by AZ Fudd's court time? This one is tricky because, well, one, we don't know what AZ's going to bring, right? Everyone knows that AZ's supposed to be really good. She's rumored to be even better than Paige, which we've talked at length how that's just seems impossible to wrap our brains around but I feel like AZ is going to be a really solid player but I don't necessarily know that she can replace what Nika brings on the court and that that defensive presence I think is something you very very rarely see from a freshman um so I think it's going to be interesting I don't know how that backcourt rotation <laughs> works out maybe it's some combination of Nika and Westbrook's minutes that AZ's taking. I don't really know. I don't have an answer. <laughs> I don't think Nika's minutes change a whole lot next season, just because the way Gino talked about her when she was out that 
they just can't replace her. You can't replace a defensive guard like that. She's just so unique on this team that I think maybe her minutes might be less just because of how many guards they have in, and they might rotate a little more, but I don't think it's going to be any one player specifically cutting into Nika's playing time. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I think it's more of a deeper rotation, but like you said, I think Nika brings something unique when this team is on the floor. So I don't yeah, necessarily know that it's fun taking her minutes. Next one is from Dave. He asks, next year's UConn team will win the national championship if the following <laughs> happens. Is it bad to say if they show up? Yeah, I was going to say, as long as like Paige Beckers <laughs> doesn't get injured, I like I have a really hard time seeing this team not winning the national championship next year. Yeah, not to set expectations too high six months before the season even begins. But if they don't win the national championship, it feels like something has gone very, 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 very badly wrong. They're just going to have so much talent. And a lot of it's going to be freshmen and sophomores, which is one thing. But still, you've got guys that have played in big games. I don't think you're going to be relying on the freshmen a whole lot. As we mentioned, they're bringing back their entire team from last year that got to the final four that could probably have won the national championship if they didn't get punched in the mouth against Arizona, you bring that, you bring back that team alone with the development they're going to have this summer. And they're probably the national championship favorites already. Then you add in Dorka, AZ, Caroline, Amari, Sailor Moore developed just in general, the freshmen, this is going to be a really good team next year. I don't really know if anyone else is going to have the talent to compete with them, especially because we saw how razor thin Stanford's national championship was this year. It wasn't like they were runaway favorites. I think they were the best team in the country and they deserve to win. That's not a knock on Stanford. It's just, it's not like they're bringing back some juggernaut of a team. They're bringing back a very good team, but I, it's UConn with a lot of talent. And a lot of times UConn, when they have this talent advantage, they just roll the national championship. So yeah, I don't think the formula should be too complicated for them next season. Who might be in their way? This is from Stats Timmy. I, I don't know how to properly say the name that you have on Twitter. So Stats Timmy asks, which three teams are the biggest threat to UConn winning a national championship next year? Nice segue. You can I go first. I think that's a Taylor Swift lyric in his name. Anyway. Um, uh, um, this is what happens when I don't listen to Taylor Swift. Um, yeah, well, I feel like there's two obvious answers and it's Stanford and South Carolina. Stanford brings back not their whole team from this year, but a lot of pieces brings in another solid recruiting class. South Carolina brings in the two, three and four ranked recruits from their, this prior class brings back basically this year's entire team as well. So another team that's just getting better. Um, so those two, I think are the obvious favorites. A, a third team, I think is harder. I think there's just a lot of teams that could be in that third spot i probably would have said baylor pre like kim Mulkey leaving but without that i yeah i don't have a solid answer right now <laughs> yeah i'm with you on those first two teams before even the transfer market settled it does feel like there's yukon and then there's stanford and south carolina kind of in that second tier and then there's just a bunch of teams in that third tier i baylor's probably still going to be in that mix as long as they don't have a total exodus of talent, I just think they're probably going to lose a couple key players that knock them down a peg. Someone out of the Pac-12 as a general answer. Stanford, yeah. 
South Carolina and another team out of the Pac-12. I don't know who it is, maybe UCLA, but yeah. I was going to say Oregon or UCLA would be my picks out of the Pac-12 there, yeah. Speaking of UCLA, this one comes in from CSL. Will they win again? Will UConn win again or have other programs caught up? They're looking like UCLA's men's program back in the 60s and 70s. I, I just don't see any possible way that Gino ends his career with 11 national championships, uh, barring something bad happening. If he can retire when he chooses, I think Gino probably retires with 13 or 14 national championships, if I had to guess. Yeah, I agree. Barring something catastrophic, catastrophic happening, he's got a couple more coming before he's done. So, yeah, they're going to win again. I think we already answered that because we basically said that. Yeah, shocking they don't win next year so (laughs) i know i've said this a lot but i i just don't really buy the argument like yes the game of college basketball women's college basketball has gotten better really even over the last five ten years so it has i don't really think that's been what's kept uconn from winning the national championship though these last five years because you have those two years after brianna stewart those two teams didn't lose because they didn't have the talent. We saw the entire season leading up to those games that they had the talent to just roll over good teams and they just played like crap in the final four and lost. Both those teams should have won national championships. That didn't really have to do with everyone else in the country. The year after UConn just had a lot of holes and it's honestly kind of remarkable that they got to the final four and were as close to the national championship game as they could have been. Maybe that has more to do with, other teams in the country being better, but UConn isn't going to be the best team in the country every single season. It's normal for them to have ups and downs. I really can't imagine what it was like back from 2005 to 2007 when UConn was not only not winning national championships, they were getting knocked out in the elite eight and sweet 16 by hefty margins. Was it just because it was a different standard and different expectations for the program back then or people equally freaking out saying maybe UConn's only going to have four national championships ever and they're never (laughs) going to catch Tennessee I don't know someone who was around for that era and who paid a lot of attention let me know because I don't know I was like in elementary school back then so I didn't exactly have a pulse on things but and then like last year that team wasn't winning the national championship just because they weren't good enough (laughs) And then this year they were young. They had the talent, but they were young. They just got that youth caught up to them. Finally, Arizona was a good team, but they beat a good team to get there. So I just never feel like the whole, the rest of the country's caught up to UConn has ever really been that valid because you stick one of these Brianna Stewart teams in next season and they win the national championship. Like, it's just when UConn has the most talent, they win national championships. They haven't had the amount of talent that they are projected to have next season in a while. So if yeah, next season they have as good of a roster as we think they will, and they still don't win it. Maybe I'll buy that argument a little more. Yeah. And I think another thing is just like a lot of those, you know, national championship teams right have had like this generational talent on it. You had Stewie and, you know, for the four in a row, you had my more, you have Taras, you just have all these like players that have been generational type talents. And I don't really think there's people say Sabrina's one. I don't know if I agree with that, but like, I don't think there's really been that player in college basketball the last few seasons, which has definitely contributed to the amount of parity that there's been. But I mean, if you think 
Paige is up. I think Paige is definitely in that category. People say AZ is too. We'll see, but they've got those players now. So I think that's going to kind of contribute to them winning some more. You didn't go outside of UConn, but Candace Parker at Tennessee, clearly a transcendent player dominated when she was at Tennessee. Yeah. I think maybe the closest ones would probably be Sabrina or Asia Wilson, but like you mentioned, Sabrina got to the final four her junior year and couldn't win it, even though they had a good team, a very similar team to what they had her senior year. Even if they win it her senior year, I don't really know if she makes that transcendent talent category. Asia Wilson, very, very good player. She completely changed South Carolina's program. Again, I don't know if she was transcendent either. She's probably, I'd say Asia Wilson was probably the closest and Sabrina Ionescu would be a yeah. close second, but. I kind of put Asia in that category because I think if you look at what she had around her at South Carolina, sure. it's more impressive that they were able to win a national championship. And like, like we've seen her go on to win an MVP award in the, in the WNBA. Right. Like she clearly is, you know, a top player. Sabrina for me still has some to prove. I don't know. I think a lot of credit for Oregon's success has been given to her, but I think it was really more of the trio of her and Hebert and Savoli that, that are all WNBA caliber players that are, that really made that happen. So I, I don't know that Sabrina's quite on that level with me. And for me, I know a lot of people probably disagree with that, but I don't think I quite have her up there yet. Yeah, no, I, I think your argument makes sense. Even just looking in the, I just feel like with basketball more so than any other sport, it's a lot easier for a single individual to drag a team far places. And like you said, Asia did that with the national championship in 2017 I don't know if it's fair or not to say that Sabrina didn't do it, but like you said, they had that trio in the 2019 final four and they couldn't win it. They couldn't even get to the championship game. So if I'm not mistaken, didn't that game go to overtime or it came down to the wire against Baylor if it didn't go to overtime, right? Yeah. I don't think it was overtime was there, but I can't remember, but it was Same. close regardless. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. And now UConn possibly has two of them. So this is a pretty solid difference maker. Yeah, just, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> this one comes in from Dan Madigan, who's been on the show, our editor at the UConn blog. This is a very interesting question. More wins for 2021-2022. CD and Marissa Mosley combined or Shea Ralph? I think the first thing that I think about with this question is that CD's taken over the team each of the last three seasons for a little bit, but it's never been more than two games. So at maximum, the CD Marissa Mosley team has at least two extra wins compared to Shea Ralph, just as a starting point. Yeah. For this, I feel like it's mostly a like Marissa Mosley versus Shea Ralph question here. I feel like I'm going mostly because even though I feel like Vanderbilt might be a slightly higher level than where Wisconsin is. I just think that it's a little bit easier to steal some wins in the big 10 than it is in the SEC. The SEC is just a juggernaut league. Right. I mean, Vanderbilt could be pretty good next year and they're still probably going to get swept by South Carolina. They're still probably going to get swept by Tennessee. They're still probably going to get swept by Texas A&M. It's just a very tough league. I think I'm with you. It's not, Wisconsin's a tough situation, but uh, it's just, it's tough. It's honestly pretty tough, but 
I, I think I would also go Marissa Mosley and CD just because also Marissa Mosley is pretty much proven that she's a very good college basketball coach. She showed what she can do at BU. Shea Ralph is still inexperienced. This is her first year. So I think there's probably going to be more growing pains and learning pains with her. Yeah, I think I think Marissa Mosley is probably my final answer. Marissa Mosley and CD. Can't discount CD there. Yeah, I think the SEC is just so hard to crack. Like those three teams you mentioned, then you've got Arkansas, you've got a Kentucky team that still has Ryan Howard. There's just so many really strong teams in that league. The Georgia team, we didn't even talk about Georgia. That was like a four seed this year. Like there's just so many good teams in that league. (laughs) Is Ryan Howard in her like seventh year? I feel like we've been talking about her forever. She will be eligible for the draft this year so she's it's just her senior season i believe it'll be her senior season um oh, so she's just been so good from the start yeah <laughs> yeah well you said she's going to be eligible for the draft and i thought you were going to tell me that she was a junior and my head was about to explode <laughs> no sorry i was okay. just thinking because she wasn't eligible this year but yeah <laughs> okay that makes me wow next year's draft class is kind of loaded yeah interesting <laughs> lastly this question comes in from me because i want to talk about it If you're not familiar, last week, the 12 biggest soccer clubs in Europe tried to break away and form their own Super League, as it was termed. Even if you don't follow soccer super closely, you might know the likes of Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United, those big, big European clubs. It didn't work out, but it got me thinking, if we were going to build a Super League for women's college basketball, where let's say basically the concept, the equivalent in American sports would be that if 20 teams or 15 teams banded together and every single year they were, they got allowed into the NCAA tournament, whether or not they deserve to be there, they were just automatic entrance every single year, whether they won every single game or lost every single game. So if you were in charge of building a women's basketball super league, who are the 10 biggest programs that you would put in? Okay. I feel like the first few are going to be easy. It's going to be UConn, mm-hmm. Stanford, mm-hmm. Baylor, um, Tennessee, South Carolina. Uh, I feel like you, even though they've had a couple down years, you put Notre Dame in there. Yeah. It's the name. Like yeah. we're, we're looking to sell the biggest television rights to this event. It doesn't right. really yeah. matter how good they are. So what are you going to draw the biggest numbers? Louisville. It's a good one. Like Maryland, probably. I was thinking them too. That's, that's kind of one of those that's on the edge, but they've been decent. And as if I'm not mistaken, they have a pretty solid fan base. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm, I think I'm at eight. So I've got, yeah two more i feel like these last two are hard because you're now down to the teams <laughs> that are on the edge it's like a bigger group. right i feel like i want to put oregon in because i think they've kind of proven that they're gonna continue being good following the sabrina kind of era so i feel like they're gonna be one of the bigger names going forward that last spot is tricky yeah, there's, I feel like there's, in my head, I am going through like five schools that I'm trying to figure out who should yeah. be there. And then it's like, do you balance their recent performance against their school name? Exactly. But you do need a doormat in the league too. 
Well, I feel like Notre Dame kind of could take that for right now. Oh, Notre Dame's <laughs> absolutely going to take that for a little while. <laughs> oh, this last one is tough. It really is. I was going to say, part of me wants to put Texas just because I do think that like Vic Schaefer is going to build that program into something that's going to be a kind of perennial contender. Especially now that Mulkey's out of the like recruiting market a little bit in Texas there, but... I don't know. It's tough. Yeah. Now those first few are easy. Like you said, UConn, Tennessee, even Notre Dame, South Carolina, Stanford. And then no, I'm trying to remember. Louisville, just, I feel like is kind of oh, yeah. easy Louisville. one too. Yeah. Now I'm just blanking no, on teams that are in the country. <laughs> I, I also think I'd probably put Maryland in just because they're a pretty solid program under What's Maryland's uh, coach's name? There we go. I knew Brenda it. Freeze. Yep, yep. Um, I don't I think, think we said we said Baylor. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about Baylor. Like, yeah, it's a name, but now you're kind of risking it because they've only been good with Kim Mulkey there. Can someone else go in there and also be good? It's kind of a risk. Baylor lost their coach at a very wrong time in our hypothetical thought experiment here. Yes, this is true. Yeah, I feel like. The answer on that is a little bit out until we see who they're hiring. Right. And then on the other side, do you take the risk and try and bring in LSU hoping that Kim Mulkey is going to replicate the success that she had at Baylor there? And then you got another SEC school. Yeah. I mean, it's also a possibility, right? Because you think about LSU is a school that has some pretty strong history still. And then obviously bringing a coach like Mulkey, that's just, huge so i don't know it's hard i feel like these last two spots are very difficult there's so yeah. many teams i want to like put in there <laughs> i honestly would take texas just one because of vic schaefer but mostly because that school just makes buku bucks like they are just <laughs> yeah, swimming money. <laughs> in cash and this is nothing more than one giant money grab so if that's all we're going for texas i think would be a slam dunk here texas would probably be the one founding this <laughs> true <laughs> so then i think that leaves us with eight and it's basically coming down between lsu slash baylor maybe oregon ucla maybe maybe yeah maybe i feel like i just want to put them in there because i love them but <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I really like Corey Close. I feel like she's going to build something pretty solid there. So, Like, I'm, I'm trying to think, is there like a program that we're clearly overlooking that has a very strong fan base, even though they kind of suck? Like, I guess technically that's Notre Dame right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think back, like, the last few years and stuff. Like, what teams are we overlooking that have been really solid? I think we've got someone from every major league at this point, at least. Um, I feel like we're missing a big one that someone somewhere is screaming at us through their yeah. <laughs> phone or whatever that we don't have. Oh, actually, here's an interesting one. Duke. Yeah, I was like been mailing that in my head because like Carol Lawson, in my opinion, was the slam dunk hire for them. And then... They've been very active in the transfer market. I'm very excited to see what they're going to look like next year. And they've been, they also have the history too. So definitely. I, I think I would probably pick Duke 
for that tenth spot, then Baylor versus LSU. That's it's the risk reward. Yeah, I feel like it's hard to answer not knowing who Baylor's hiring because that creates a whole other dynamic of like they could hit, end up with some huge hire. We don't know who they're hiring yet, so. Right, but then it's also not only what they'll look like next year, but what will they look like 10, 15 years down the road? Right. And how old is Kim Mulkey? Like, is she even going to be at LSU in 10 or 15 years? That's a good question. I feel like she's not that old, but I could be wrong. She is 58. 58. So. Someone once told me during the NCAA tournament that she looks like a skeleton, and I just can never unsee that. <laughs> I mean, fair. I think it's hard. Oh man, this this last one's really killing us. Like if she can win a national championship at LSU, suddenly LSU is like a legit program. Right. But until she gets it there, do you put it in? It's so hard. Right, right. Yeah. It is Wow. Looking I, I just have the champions <laughs> pulled up or the championship history for women's basketball. And the runners up in the last for the last while have actually been fairly small programs, not small, but like not power. So obviously this year was Arizona, then Notre Dame the year before or the tournament before. So that doesn't really count, but then Mississippi state two years in a row, not exactly a big time program. And then Syracuse, when you kind of kick the crap out of them in Brianna Stewart's senior year. So three programs that haven't really had a ton of success outside those runs. Obviously we don't know, where Arizona's heading, but it's pretty interesting that it's been like not only five different champions in the last five years, but there's been some variety with who's gotten there too. Yeah, very true. All right. Got to make a decision right now. Baylor or LSU? Feel like I'm going Baylor for now. Yep. I was going to say the same thing. I think Baylor's the safer choice. And even if this next hire doesn't work out, I think they're probably a program that's going to, invest as much as a school and institution like Baylor will invest in women's basketball to try and stay good. Even if this next hire flops, whereas LSU, if Mulkey maybe gets them to a couple final fours and then retires, I don't necessarily know if they're going to be guns blazing, trying to get back to the top. Like I feel like they're going to see if this one works out. And then if not, they're going to then turn their attention to Ed Orgeron and watch LSU football again. Like I, I just don't necessarily believe that LSU takes women's basketball all that seriously, even though this is a big time hire. I don't think they would have gone out and gotten some big name head coach. If Mulkey wasn't interested, I think they would have hired some random assistant from some random school that we've never heard of. Yeah, that's fair. I am looking at this though. LSU actually has more final fours than Baylor, which is kind of shocking. But yeah, well, Kim Mulkey made a habit of losing in the elite eight at UConn or <laughs> at Baylor. Like she lost there a lot and it was more or less when she got to the national or the final four, she won pretty much most of the times. I think she lost to UConn one time, but yeah, she made those final four trips count. She just didn't get there very often. Well, thanks to everyone who sent in questions. We'll hopefully do another one of these at some point throughout the off season. That's going to do it for this episode of Chasing Perfection. And now that we've gotten to the Q&A, we are going to go back to once every two weeks as we did when we launched the show back in July with less happening right now. 
So you can follow Megan on Twitter at Megan Gower. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel V. Connolly. Be sure to subscribe to the show, review it, tell a friend about it. Also subscribe to the UConn Women's Basketball Weekly. We have some big news coming up there soon with that. Megan, send us out. Well, I'll talk to you all in two weeks. <laughs>